Lord, we come to you now and we thank you for the opportunity tonight um, to meet again and to study your word and to consider the life of David and to consider um, uh, your immense blessings on his life, um, his example that he set as, as the greatest king that Israel ever had before Christ, and also the humanity um, that he still struggled with flesh, with sin, with fallenness, with depravity. As we study tonight, Lord, uh, my prayer is for just a sobriety, that, that we would be able to, um, to end our study and to end this cool semester of, of having such a sweet opportunity of taking a look at a larger chunk of Scripture, that we'd be able to do so in a way that is uh, edifying and, and sober and where we can look reasonably at our own lives and at the blessings that we have from you and, and really what we're doing with them. And I pray that it would be a, a rejoicing in that you persevere so steadfastly with your people, but also that, that it would be a, a sober moment where we can um, consider our own sin and what we're doing about it. Uh, Lord, I'm thankful for your word. I'm thankful that it's alive. I'm thankful that it, it pierces and cuts, and I'm thankful that it um, informs and warns and encourages, and it does all those things in ways that we can't really fully comprehend as it's happening. So I pray that you would use us as you see fit, inform us, keep us in step with the Spirit, and let this time be uh, glorifying to you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, David, part three. Um, last week was... Remember, I said that Second Samuel is a pretty easy book to sort of outline. The first ten chapters are good, the second ten chapters are bad, and the last four chapters are sort of miscellaneous. So we spent most of our time in those first four chapters last week, and in that we saw um, God's goodness in David's life in a number of ways. So what are some ways that we saw God's goodness in David's life? What are some things that God did to bless him and there, therein bless the nation of Israel? Yeah, he gave him victory over his enemies, one after the other after the other. It wasn't just his ability to fight that brought victory. It was God giving him victory, giving his enemies over to him. What else? Yeah, yeah, David had a proper perspective of himself in light of the Lord's goodness and knowing that he didn't really have any goodness apart from the goodness of the Lord, and the Lord blessed that. Um, the Lord instilled that perspective in him and then blessed him when he kept it. Um, so that, that was uh, certainly um, beneficial and good. What were you going to say? Yeah, yes. He was a worshiper before he um, came into that leadership role. In, in what ways did David's leadership bless other people? When you see God's blessing on the life of an individual, usually you see that individual blessing others. How do we see that with David? Yeah. 
Yeah, yeah. He obediently went and got the ark and brought it back, and he he conquered those who were set, setting themselves against the nation and and bringing the ark back. It represented the power and the presence of God, which was good and it was fitting because that informed the people and it gave them an awareness of God's presence that was unique to the ark. I think. What else? Ways that David blessed others in his leadership. Yeah, yeah. He was very kind of Mephibosheth. Um, looking, looking for a, uh, an offspring of, of, uh, of Jonathan and, and Saul that, that he, could, he could bless. And the song, you know the song, Carried to the Table? You ever heard that song? Carried to the Table, Swept Away by His Love. It's a great song. It's about Mephibosheth. <laughs> Nothing rhymes with Mephibosheth, so you call it Carried to the Table. So... Yeah, he didn't kill Saul when he had a chance. That was certainly a blessing to Saul. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. How should these things encourage us in the leadership roles that God's placed us in? Yeah, he gives us an example to lead from the front. Turn to 2 Samuel 23. These are some of David's last words, and in 23 verses 3 through 4, we read this last week, and I'm going to read it again, and I'm going to ask the question again after I read it. 2 Samuel 23, 3 through 4, The God of Israel has spoken, the rock of Israel has said to me, When one rules justly over men, ruling in the fear of God, He dawns on them like the morning light, like the sun shining forth on a cloudless morning, like rain that makes grass to sprout from the earth. So how should these things encourage us in the leadership roles that God has placed us in? What'd you say? Yeah, promote growth. Yeah, the key is to rule in the fear of God. As soon as you're in a leadership role and you take your eyes off of God, you will go from being a blessing to the people that you're leading to being a curse. You'll, you'll be um, uh, not sympathetic, not patient, not long-suffering. You, will, you'll be, you won't be um, quick to hear and slow to anger. You'll be slow to hear and quick to anger um, as soon as you lose sight of God and you think that you're the one who is ultimately in charge. How else does it inform our leadership roles? great point. How, how many of you guys or girls have been in a deer blind when the sun's coming up? Anybody? Okay. 
Only women have raised their... Okay, there. <laughs> it is Hunt County, yeah, whatever. Um, uh, yeah, it's uh, all of a sudden as that sun's coming up, you can see more things and you can see the movement and you can see things that are a little further away and there's, uh, there's goodness there. And so um, that's a really good point that it's like the dawn. There's a consistency there, that three mile an hour daily um, consistent walk that is a blessing. Last week, our focus was on God's blessing and David's faith. And this week, um, we're going to consider that the greatest king that ever ruled Israel sinned horribly against God and others. And like all others, he had to repent before a holy God because of his sin. Last week, we, we very purposefully and intentionally looked at the goodness that came from David's life. That Man, he, he was steadfast and persevering, and he was a warrior, and he fought, and he was obedient, and, and he was... Um, he was, he was so impressed by God, and he, and he moved in that manner all the time, and, and, and he was a real blessing to those that he led. But this week, we're going to consider that even though he was, he, he was called a man after God's own heart, he was considered the greatest king that Israel ever had, he still sinned horribly against God, and in doing so, like all other sinners, had to repent before our holy God. So... Um, that's going to that's gonna lead us to look at some of the Psalms. Um, the Psalms are very, very rich. If you've ever studied the Psalms, just, you, you should notice every time you read, there's something else there. There's a dynamic. There's a nuance. There's, a, there's something that's communicated poetically that it wouldn't just be found in prose. And um, we see that though David was the best ruler Israel ever had, he was not a perfect ruler. He was the best, but he was not perfect. And, and that comes out in the Psalms a lot. So go ahead and turn with me um, to Psalm 18. We're going to be going back to 2 Samuel shortly, but turn to Psalm 18. It's interesting, and some of these psalms, you'll read them and you'll think, man, he sounds kind of sure of himself. Um, but when you read closer, it's, it's not that he's so sure of himself. He's, he's sure of his God, and he's trying to move in a right manner. It's not wrong to say, like sometimes we get into this way of thinking where we're so pessimistic and we're so cynical that we just say, well, we don't ever do anything good and no one can ever do anything good. If you get into that way of thinking, you're not going to encourage anybody ever. Because if someone does something good, you're going to look at it and you're going to find something wrong with it. Someone does something faithful, they persevered, they did something, they finished well. You're going to look at it and figure out how it could have been better and you're not going to encourage them in, a, in the manner that maybe you should have. When I read some of what David has written, I read him saying, I was blameless. And I'm like, ha! Blameless David, Bathsheba ring a bell? And I, you kind of go to that place where the cynicism and the pessimism will come out, and you're not encouraging people the way you should. God's people have been endowed by God with goodness from God. And sometimes they do really good things that are commendable and need to be commended. God's people are indwelled by the Spirit, and they will sometimes do things that are otherworldly, that as a fellow believer, you can genuinely, wholeheartedly look at them and say, well done, that was awesome. Man, I praise God for the way I see him moving in you, as opposed to letting that pessimism and the cynicism creep up to where you end up looking, finding a reason never to encourage anybody because we don't think that anybody's really good at all. God's good, and he helps us to move in a manner where we do bear his image sometimes. And so if you're a Christian and you have Christ, you follow Christ, you move in repentance, you're indwelled by the Spirit, sealed with the Spirit, there are times where you will put the glory of our great God on display, and people should look at that and say, well done, that was good. 
I think things like that will cause us to be more encouraging. So keep that in mind as we read some of these Psalms, because if you look at the big picture, you can say, well, David did some pretty horrible things, uh, adulterer, murderer, we're going to get to all that in a minute. So if you see something good, you can be like, well, that wasn't really good because he ended up doing some bad things. No, it was really good. He's a sinner. He needs to repent when he sins. But there's still good things that happen. So that said, look at Psalm 18. We're going to look at 20 through 24. <clears throat> David says, this is a psalm that he wrote after a, uh, after a victory. He said, um, the Lord dealt with me according to my righteousness. Have you ever said that? <laughs> That, that, those are sort of foreign words to me. I, I don't know if I've ever said that to someone else or said that to God. Lord, you have dealt with me according to my righteousness. It, it, it just immediately sort of hits me sideways, and it's not a language that we're used to. But, but look, it's, it's sincere, and it's, it's included in the canon of Scripture. It's considered breathed out by God, and it is considered profitable. So let's continue reading. The Lord dealt with me according to my righteousness. According to the cleanness of my hands, he rewarded me. For I have kept the ways of the Lord, and have not wickedly departed from God, from my God. For all his rules were before me, and his statute I did not put away from me. I was blameless before him, and I kept myself from my guilt. So the Lord rewarded me according to my righteousness, according to the cleanness of my hands in his sight. David, at a point in his life, could genuinely say that we years down the road, can look at that and know that that was genuinely true. That was, a, that was worship. The Psalms are worship to God. That wasn't David saying, I'm going to have a little David section of worship to David. No, that's David worshiping God for the way that God moved as David was trying to obey him in all things. So obviously there's more to the story, but that is good and that's true. Now look over at um, Psalm 26, verse 11. Here's where some of the, the lingo starts to, to bleed over. Psalm 26, verse 11 says, But as for me, this is David again, But as for me, I shall walk in my integrity. Redeem me and be gracious to me. And we kind of have some things clashing in this verse. So my question is, why would someone who is blameless and walks in integrity need redemption, grace, and mercy? Why would someone who's blameless and who walks in integrity need redemption, grace, and mercy? Yeah. Yeah, there are times where you can be walking in integrity in something and pray, Lord, deliver me because I know I'm going to need the deliverance. Give me grace and mercy because I know there's going to be times, even though I may be walking in integrity right now, there will be times where um, I'll need you not to give me what I deserve or I'll need you to give me what I don't deserve. That's grace and mercy. So here he can say those things that even though someone who's blameless and walks in integrity, that he needs grace and redemption. Um, what's the difference between blameless and sinless? Noah was blameless. He got drunk and passed out naked in his tent. So what's the difference between blameless and sinless? A way of life? That's a great way of saying it. Yeah. Yeah. He was marked by 
obedience. But that doesn't mean you weren't ever disobedient. To be blameless is to move, persevering in the things of the Lord. To be blameless is to say, God, I hear what you're saying. I'm listening. I want to obey. If, if I see sin, I'm going to repent. If, if, if I see good, faithful movement, I'm going to persevere in it. I'm going to encourage others to do one, the same. I'm going to exhort others as long as it's called today. I'm going to move in this manner. My whole life's going to be worship. But I know I'm still a sinner. I still have a depraved heart, and, can, and it can be deceitful above all else. And so... I need grace. I need mercy. I'm going to need you to rescue me. I'm going to need you to redeem me. And even in this moment where it feels like I'm moving in a blameless way, redeem me from that which I don't even know. There's, there's sins in the Bible um, that are, um, as, you study, as we study through our Old Testament, one of the things we found is, is um, sins that you didn't do on purpose. Well, just because you didn't do it on purpose doesn't mean it's not a sin. And there still has to be atonement made even for that. So in our best moment, in our, in our most faithful moment, we can still wholeheartedly cry out to God for redemption and for rescue and for mercy and for grace because we need it. There's no time where we kind of sever the limb and say, oh, God, I'm, I'm doing pretty good. Just if you stay out of the way, I'm going to be moving forward pretty, pretty well, pretty faithfully. Just don't trip me up with any of your holiness stuff. That's not how it works. We always need God. So um, the difference between blameless and sinlessness. Um, I like the way Chad said it, that a blameless, it's a way of life. It's what you're marked by. To say that someone is blameless is not to say that they're sinless. And we know what First John says, he who says he's without sin is a liar. It makes, it makes God a liar. And so all of us are sinners, but there can be blameless movement in the life of a sinner who is redeemed by Christ and following God. Now, um, I want to look at some of the sin in David's life. He was not sinless. So one of the sins that he committed was the sin of counting the troops. So turn back to 2 Samuel and look at 24 uh, verse 2. 2 Samuel 24 2. This is near the end of the book. And we're going to look at the sin of counting the troops. This whole thing is not perfectly clear. But we can glean some things from what is included um, in, the, in this account. So uh, 24.2 says, So the king, that's David, said to Joab, the commander of the army who was with him, Go through all the tribes of Israel from Dan to Beersheba and number the people that I may know the number of the people. Pretty simple. My question is, why did David do this? The reason's right there in that verse. Why did he number the people? So that he would know. For the sake of knowledge. Now what he does with that knowledge is what's not included here. But we can certainly see some, some context clues from Joab's response and others. And so it says that he numbered them so that he would know their number. So the reason that he took a census of the troops is for his own knowledge. Now look at verse 3. But Joab said to the king, May the Lord your God add to the people a hundred times as many as they are, while the eyes of my Lord the king still see it. But why does my Lord the king delight in this thing? What are some things that are revealed from Joab, who is um, close to David and who, in fact, um, does a large majority of the correcting and the admonishing of David? What is revealed in the way that he responds in that verse? What are some things that are revealed? 
Yeah. It appears that David's doing it as a source of pride, potentially. What else? Yeah. Yeah. You see this faith in Joab. They're saying, if, if we need more people, do you not think God's going to provide that? I mean, he's always done that. And so um, here, Joab sees this as a pretty horrific order. We can't know exactly what all the nuances and the details were that happened there, but we can insinuate, or not insinuate, we can glean a few things from this that one, um, it was an order that, there was a red flag that went up for Joab. He's saying, Joab, do this, and Joab's saying, hold on, I have a question about that. And, and what we see here is, um, it could have been pride, could have been self-reliance, it could have been him moving in a way that was sort of indicating his independence from God. How many men do I have? That's very different than saying, we have as much as we need, and if we need more, the Lord will provide. You see the difference in those two approaches? Um, um, it could have been independence from God that he was exercising. While we can't be exactly sure of what David's motive was, here's what we can be sure of. Those around him saw it to be bad, and they addressed it appropriately. Those around David had a bunch of red flags that went up, and they, they addressed what they saw as being out of step with the Spirit and not right as, as far as movement and faith goes. And so, um, turn, to chapter, um, turn to chapter 11. I want us to see that this isn't isolated, and then, then we'll talk about a couple details. Keep in mind that those around David saw that this was an issue and they addressed it appropriately. The episode in chapter 24 is not this isolated event of stumbling into sin. Um, chapters 11 through 20 are really quite heartbreaking. If you read the, the book, we said 1 through 10 is good, 11 through 20 is bad. When I say bad, I mean really heartbreaking. I was talking to Clay. He, he listens to this in his car as he's driving. He's just like, man, that is, that is sad. Like what happened there, there was all this potential, all this goodness, and what we found, it was just sad. It's just kind of as you're listening to it, there, there's some heartbreak that we should feel as we see the effects of sin. So, um, uh, Dever calls it a tragic epic of sin and sin's multiplying consequences. And that's what we're about to look at is these multiplying consequences. So in chapter 11, um, I'm going to go ahead and read chapter 11 out loud. This is um, one of the most, um, probably the most familiar accounts for us of, of him stumbling. But interestingly, as I read through this this afternoon, I don't know if all the details of the account are familiar to us. We know there was adultery with Bathsheba, but there's a lot of details in here that are, um, they're not like, you know, juicy details that are inappropriate to consider, but they're, de they're details where you, you really see some significant deception. You see um, some really brazen movement. You see some hard-heartedness in David, and, and you begin to ask questions like, whoa, whoa, I, I thought this guy was a man after God's own heart. I thought he was the greatest king that Israel ever had, and he looks no different than any other average everyday dirt bag. That, that's what he looks like in this chapter. So look at some of the details and, and um, just listen closely and consider them as I read the chapter aloud. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, and they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. It happened late one afternoon, when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house, that he saw from the roof a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman, and one said, Is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, 
the wife of Uriah the Hittite. So David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness. Then she returned to her house. And the woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. That's a pretty short paragraph that has a lot of stuff that just happened. Like, like that was four verses of a ton of drama. Um, so you can imagine how it would actually be playing out. I'm like, he laid with her. She was pregnant. Sent him word. And that's what, I mean, it sounds kind of rigid, but I mean, this, this would have been very dramatic. There's a lot of things going on here that should not be going on. And in verse 6, it says, so David sent word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. That, those words, send me Uriah the Hittite, just about creeped me out. As I was reading this this afternoon, I'm like, that was his first response. Send me Uriah the Hittite. Send me Bathsheba's husband. And look at what happens here. And Joab sent Uriah to David. When Uriah came to David, David asked how Joab was doing and how the people were doing and how the war was going. He's being buddy-buddy with Uriah. Then David said to Uriah, Go down to your house and wash your feet. And Uriah went out of the king's house, and there followed him a present from the king. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his lord and did not go down to his house. What do y'all think David was maybe trying to do there? Anybody? Yeah. Yeah, he's trying to get rid of the evidence, whatever. I mean, he's trying to make it look like he didn't do what he's done. And, hey, man, why don't you go, go home for a little while? Maybe that'll work. I mean, he's being so deceptive here. And look at what Uriah does. When they told David, um, I'm sorry, but Uriah, verse 9, slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his lord and did not go down to his house. When they told David... Uriah did not go down to his house. David said to Uriah, <clears throat> Have you not come from a journey? Why did you not go down to your house? Uriah said to David, The ark in Israel and Judah dwell in booths, and my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go to my house to eat and to drink and to lie with my wife? As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. What do we know about Uriah? noble. There's some character there. There's some camaraderie that he shares with his fellow troops. There's, there's a consistency in the way that he moves. There's a wholeheartedness in the way that he, um, he, is, he is responding to this sort of opportunity to go do what any man would want to do if he's home for a while from being at war. And, uh, and here it says, um, as you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. Then David said to Uriah, Remain here today also, and tomorrow I will send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. And David invited him, and he ate in his presence and drank, so that he made him drunk. Oh, if I can't get you to do what I want you to do, I'll get you drunk, and we'll see what happens. And in the evening he went out to lie on his couch with the servants of his Lord, but he did not go down to his house. He's thinking, maybe if I get him drunk, he'll stumble on down home. I mean, good night. Nope, he didn't. He stayed where he was supposed to. And in the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. And the letter he wrote, set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting and then draw back from him that he may be struck down and die. Man, that is some seriously 
brazen and rash movement. And as Joab was besieging the city, he assigned Uriah to the place where he knew there were valiant men. And the men of the city came out and fought with Joab, and some of the servants of David among the people fell. Uriah the Hittite also died. Then Joab sent and told David all the news about the fighting, and he instructed the messenger. This whole section is weird. When you have finished telling all the news about the fighting to the king, then if the king's anger arises, and if he says to you, why did you go so near to the city to fight? Did you not know they would shoot from the wall? Who killed Abimelech, the son of Jerubbesheth? Did not a woman cast an upper millstone on him from the wall so that he died at Thebes? Why did you go so near the wall? Then you shall say... Your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. I, have, I, I'm, I didn't spend a whole lot of time in the commentaries on that section. I have no idea. It's like, hey, if by chance he says these 10 really specific things with questions, um, then you say, it's just kind of weird. I, I, I don't know. I'm sure there's something amazing there. Someone may have studied it. Um, I didn't uh, uh, go too much into that particular weird section. So the messenger went and came and told David all that Joab had sent him to tell. The messenger said to David, the men gained an advantage over us and came out against us in the field, but we drove them back to the entrance of the gate. Then the archers shot at your servants from the wall. Some of the king's servants are dead, and your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. David said to the messenger, thus shall you say to Joab, do not let this matter trouble you, for the sword devours now one and now another. Strengthen your attack against the city and overthrow it, and encourage him. When the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she lamented over her husband. And when the morning was over, David sent, brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. You think, yeah. Um, Oh, that we could see the consequences of our sin before we commit them. That's one way of fighting against sin is to consider what the consequences will be once you have followed through with that sin. There'd be a lot less cheating uh, there'd be a lot less heartache. There'd be a lot less um, horrible, um, murderous things done toward people if, if we would consider the consequences of our sin before we commit that sin. Um, what are some of the horrible consequences of David's sin? Just start throwing stuff out. Some of the horrible consequences of David's sin. Death. Yeah. Yeah, they had a child, and then the child died. What else? Yeah. 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 Yeah, you can't say, go to this place and then withdraw and just hope that one guy dies. I mean, a, a lot of his servants, those who were fighting with him, fighting for Israel, fighting for the nation known as God's people, doing what God wants them to do. Let me just use this section to um, cover my own tracks and get what I want. It's really wicked what he's done here. Um, uh huh. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Don't don't be down. This just happens in war. Yeah, yeah. You, you see a hard heartedness there. Brazen is the word that just keeps coming to mind where it's just like, man, he, he at that point is sort of a, just a stone-cold killer. I mean, just stone-faced. I mean, what he did there and how he responded was very, very, very cold. Um, 
We're, yeah, remember at the beginning. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, yeah, he stayed back in Jerusalem. He sent them out, and he stayed back for a reason. So um, what's the worst effect of David's sin? Is it? Oh, yeah, there definitely would have been a loss of respect. Y'all think about like the, the absolute pinnacle of, of the, the worstness, the filthiness of his sin. What was the worst effect? Yeah, he angered God. And particularly, what does it mean if he angered God? He'd potentially take it out on Israel? How is God angered? He, he did evil. He, yeah, exactly. He did evil, and that sin is ultimately against God. When we sin, most significantly, we despise the Lord. That's, the, that's what the, the phrasing of the scriptures is. We despise the Lord. We may not think of it as, as that. Some of us are so narcissistic that we think that when we sin, well, it just has some bad effect on us. And we think that's the worst effect of our sin, that, well, I'm going to have to pay for that, but so be it. And that's very narcissistic in thinking because the worst effect of our sin is that we have, we have despised the Lord. We have gone against our God. We have misrepresented him as image bearers. And that is not pleasing to the Lord and it is not edifying to others and it is confusing to those who do not know our God. So when we sin, our worst, the, the sin is first and foremost against God. That's part of the reason that we work through forgiveness the way we do is that we don't wanna just sweep something under the rug that can't be overlooked. It says that it's, it's our glory to overlook sin, but not if it can't be overlooked. There are some things that can be overlooked. Someone was short with me. They don't have a pattern of being short with me. They don't have a history of being short with me. And I'm not used to seeing them short with anybody, and they were short with me, and we move on with our life. I can say, you know what? I'm going to overlook it. I'm never going to bring that up again. That, that is not something that's going to hinder our relationship. They're not misrepresenting God and all these things. But if it's something that can't be overlooked, we go to that person and we address that. But, but when we address sin in someone else's life, we, we can't go with this attitude like, worst of all, you sinned against me. No matter how bad it is, there's some bad sins. I mean, we can be horrible toward each other. There are friends that have done horrible things to each other. There are spouses that have done horrible things to each other. But what we have to remember as we're walking through those things and dealing with sin is that first and foremost, every one of these sins is a despising of the Lord. It goes against God and it misrepresents his character. So um, that is the most significant thing about David's sin. And there's a very sad list of real consequences. I'm gonna kind of go through these Somewhat quickly, because if you go too slow, it becomes very sad. Um, chapter 12, the sword does not depart from David's family, and David and Bathsheba's love child is born and dies. That's one of the first effects that we see. Chapter 13, David's eldest son, Amnon, repeats David's sin. But he doesn't just repeat his sin, he does it in a way that's even worse, even more wicked. Amnon is not a name that a lot of us know, and... Um, it's because he, we don't see a lot of virtue in his life. We see him taking the worst things that his dad did and sort of capitalizing on him. And Amnon um, repeats Davidson in chapter 23, and even worse, um, he illicitly takes Tamar, who is his half-sister, and he rapes her. And David does nothing. So his, his son, Amnon, 
takes Tamar, Amnon's half-sister, rapes her, and David does nothing. And what we see in, in this chapter is that David is going from some sins of commission to some sins of omission, where he kind of becomes this sort of withdrawn, aloof um, king that is kind of marked for a season by really not doing anything. He's just kind of blah. He's just still. He's not actively pursuing the goodness of God in anything. And so here it says he, he does nothing, um, but Absalom, Tamar's full brother, is hacked, as you would imagine. I mean, if, if any of y'all can imagine something like that happening to your sibling, I mean, Absalom was hacked. And um, two years later, Absalom kills Amnon. And David's response um, is, is that he, he expresses nothing but sorrow. He expresses sorrow. He never did anything to correct Amnon. And he expresses sorrow at his death. And in chapter 14, after a three-year exile, David is persuaded to bring Absalom out of exile and back to Jerusalem. But by then, Absalom despises his father. The despise that he has for his father has ripened by that point. And in chapter 15, Absalom uses his new restored position to rebel against David. He claims the throne, and David, still in passive mode, evacuates Jerusalem. So David's again in this passive mode, and he evacuates Jerusalem. Chapter 16, David travels east. Chapter 17, Absalom pursues David. Now remember Joab. Y'all remember Joab? Joab was bad. In 18, Joab captures and kills Absalom. And it says that David is gentle with him and responds with sheer grief. And in 1833, um, David says, Oh, my son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom, if only I had died instead of you. So he mourns over this. Um, and it's interesting because there's, a, uh, there's a, a, a point in all that where Joab goes to him and says, Look, we did what we had to do, and you're not encouraging any of your troops because you're whining about what we did, and you're not being a good leader. You're, you're passive, and you're omitting things that you should be doing, and it's not fitting for what you have been charged with. Joab is, is, is good at holding someone accountable who is difficult to hold accountable. Now, um, in 19, David returns to a divided Jerusalem, and then in chapter 20, a man named Sheba leads a charge from the northern tribes against David. They rebel against David. So, um, that's 10 chapters of some serious sorrow. Injustice, sorrow, grief, lust, murder, rape, division, real consequences, and effects of sin. This is the man who is considered a man after God's own heart. This is the greatest king that Israel ever had. Yet, we see some really horrible sin with some really horrible consequences and effects. Remember we talked about power last week? I gave that really, uh, uh, like, not known quote that I don't know where I pulled it from about power, absolute power corrupts, absolutely. Um, uh, Dever says... Um, Power gives the corruption that exists in your soul an opportunity to exercise itself and grow stronger. Be careful with it. Power gives the corruption that exists in your soul a chance to grow stronger and to be exercised. So, um, the, the encouragement is to be careful with it. Proverbs 27, 6 that says that the opposite of a friend is not an enemy, but a flatterer. The opposite of a friend is not an enemy, but a flatterer. So be careful not to become unable to be corrected. 
Some of us would prefer to be surrounded by flatterers. Tell me how awesome I am, please. No matter what I do, just affirm my goodness. And it says the the opposite of a friend isn't an enemy, it's a flatterer. We, We shouldn't want that. Rather, we should want to surround ourselves with people who will shoot straight with us and who will help us to see things the way we're supposed to see them. You should crave the ability to humbly receive instruction. Christ alone of all of Adam's sons is perfect. You are not. We desperately need Christ. We desperately need the community that he gives to us so that we can see ourselves for for what we are and to be able to move accordingly. If you just love it when people flatter you or say good things to you, but you hate it when anyone says anything other than encouragement, I would ask you to, to look at that and to consider that and to consider, is, is that something that you feel because of pride in your heart? Is that something that kind of shuts you down or turns you off because, because um, you can't handle the thought that maybe someone doesn't completely approve of the way you're moving? We should crave the ability to humbly receive instruction. So our question at this point in the study is what now? Is this all just a waste? And we got this guy who was awesome and had all this potential, and look at what he did. Or is there a possibility for God to use even such evil as this for kingdom good? And what we're, gonna, what we're seeing here at, at the end of this is that, like David, we've all been blessed. Remember this, this theme that we've seen in Israel over the course of years now. God blesses the people, the people receive the blessing, the people rebel, and God sets himself against them. The people repent. God blesses them, and the cycle starts over. That's something we see, and we've seen it, in fact, here in the life of David. So, um, like David, all of us sitting here have been blessed by God. Like David, all of us sitting here have sinned. But there is the possibility that unlike David, maybe some of us haven't repented of the sin. David came back and repented And that's why his name didn't go down as the most crooked, horrible person that ever lived. He's he's known as the greatest king that Israel ever had. He was not sinless, but he was blameless. And upon sinning, he did repent. And he did receive the instruction that was given to him by those who were put in his life to walk with him. So, a few things here. Um, All of us have been blessed. All of us have sinned. But have all of us repented? That's kind of the question at hand. Um, amid this terrible second half of Second Samuel, the account of David's sin is punctuated by some of the clearest examples in the Bible, the clearest examples in the Bible of a person, an individual, struggling against his sin. And in this book, um, there's at least five steps that kind of come out of Second Samuel for dealing with sin. So the first one is rebuke. Look at 12, 1 through 15. This is Nathan rebuking David. <coughs> 2 Samuel 12, 1 through 15. When dealing with sin, something that is needed is rebuke. And the Lord sent Nathan to David. He came to him and said to him, There were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, um, which he had bought. And he brought it up, and it grew up with him and with his children. It used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms, and it was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler um, to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man, and he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die, and he shall restore the lamb fourfold, because he did this thing, and because he had no pity... 
And Nathan said to David, you are that man. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul and I gave your master's house and your master's wives into your arms and gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. And if this were too little, I would add to you as much more. Why have you, he sounds like Joab there. If you needed more, God would have given you more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Nathan's putting the sword of the Ammonites in David's hand. David, you did that. You can't blame the Ammonites for that. You killed him with the Ammonite sword. Now therefore the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised Me, and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife, thus says the Lord, behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house. Remember what we just talked about with Amnon and Absalom? Because you have despised me and taken Uriah, um, behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house, and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor. And he shall lie with your wives in the sight of this son. For you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the son. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. That's a sober response. He didn't go into a whole lot. He didn't go into some speech about doing something wrong and trying to make it right. He just said, I I sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. Nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord... The child who is born to you shall die. Then Nathan went to his house, and the Lord afflicted the child that Uriah's wife bore to him, and he became sick. Uh, Yeah, many. Yeah. Um, In the Old Testament, yeah, that's a really good question. I was really hoping no one would ask that. Um, uh, (laughs) No, uh, in the Old Testament, there is is a dynamic where um, kings would have multiple wives. Um, and that absolutely does not give approval to our culture today in having multiple wives. So that, that's the jump people want to make. They want to they see something that happened in the Old Testament and say, oh, that's okay. Um, and that, that was never God's best design, and God makes that clear in the New Covenant. And one man shall have one wife, and he makes it very clear, and he goes on to explain in Corinthians and other areas about not letting the marriage bed be defiled. So, yes, in the Old Testament, there were men, even of God, who had multiple wives, but God makes that very clear that that is not his plan for his children today as we walk. So, um, so yes, that was, an occa- that was an occasion that happened in the Old Testament, but do not make the jump into thinking that, wait, does that, wait, do we miss something along the way? No, no. Um, one husband, one wife is, is God's design, and that is made clear in, in the New Covenant. Um, yes. Yeah, it's weird. It's, it's, um, it's, it's hard for us. That's so, it's just so against what we know as far as covenant goes, and it's so against what we know as far as culture goes that we read that, and we, we almost don't even have a park in place for that thought. And so it can get really confusing really quick, but it would be less confusing if we make sure not to make the jump to... Uh, to thinking it's okay for us to do that. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, no. I want, I want, that's really good, yeah. 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 
yeah, you go back to Jacob and Leah and Rachel and I mean. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 Yeah, if there's a man who reads this and thinks, oh, multiple wives, that'd be cool. You're a fool. <laughs> it never turns out well for any of these men with multiple wives. But you see those who are true to their wife be very, very blessed. And so it never turns out well for those who, who have multiple wives, but those who are true to their wife are very, very, very very blessed. And if you think you could do it different, you are wrong. Um, that was a good question. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, so, uh, rebuke. Here what we see is that this kind of rebuke that Nathan gave to David takes immense courage and immense love. And even more than that, Nathan, um, uh, even more than Nathan, Joab confronts David on three different occasions. And in 19, turn over to chapter 19 real quick. In 19, it was told Joab, Behold, the king is weeping and mourning for Absalom. So the victory that day was turned into mourning for all the people, for the people heard that day the king is grieving for his son, the evil son who raped Tamar. And the people stole into the city that day as people steal in who are ashamed when they flee in battle. So they just won this battle and they did good things, but because the king's weeping over his son, they're walking back into the city as if they, they're shamed and their heads are down. The king covered his face, and the king cried with a loud voice, Oh, my son Absalom, oh, Absalom, my son, my son. Then Joab came into the house to the king and said, You have today covered with shame the faces of all your servants, who have this day saved your life and the lives of your sons and your daughters and the lives of your wives and your concubines, because you love those who hate you and hate those who love you. For you have made it clear today that commanders and servants are nothing to you. For today I know that if Absalom were alive and all of us were dead, then you would be pleased. Now therefore arise, go out and speak kindly to your servants. For I swear by the Lord, if you do not go, not a man will stay with you this night. And this will be worse for you than all the evil that has come upon you from your youth until now. Good night. He's talking to a king. But he's, he's shooting as straight as he needs to shoot. He's not out of line. He's saying, stop it. Get out there and encourage them. Or you know how they sleep here and protect you? They're going to be gone. And the, the horrible things that have come upon you are nothing compared to the horrible things that will come upon you if you don't make this right. He's saying, quit whining over things you shouldn't be whining over. It's a, it's a significant rebuke. So the first thing is rebuke. The second thing is confession. Um, a good diagnosis is half the cure. When we confess things, what we need to do is, is say our sin the way that God would say it. We can't say, well, you know, I made a bad decision, and I'm going to have to pay the consequences. No, a true confession says, you know what, this is how God would view it. I have wronged the living God. I have sinned against my friend. I have sinned against my wife. I have been wicked. I have pursued um, fleshly things. I have exercised pride. We have to be specific in that confession because half of a good um, cure is, is a good diagnosis. Repentance. David doesn't stop with the confession and the rebuke. He backs up his words. In, in 1421, Joab rebukes David concerning his need to restore Absalom, and David simply says, very well, I will do it. That's repentance. That's movement. And again, um, in 19.8, Joab confronts David for his inappropriate mourning over Absalom, and Joab speaks to David, and then we read, so the king got up. That's repentance. 
If sorrow leads to a change in life, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 7 that it's godly sorrow. If the sorrow that you have over your sin leads to a change in your life, that's godly sorrow. But, um, and that's the beginning of repentance is actually what it says. This is the beginning of repentance and godly sorrow. But worldly sorrow, however, is just mere grief. It's just sullen, sinking regret. It brings no change and it brings no life. By God's grace, David repents of his sins. He grieves and he changes. And then he takes responsibility for the consequences of his sin, which we see again in chapter 24. And then finally, there's forgiveness. In chapter 24, we read that um, David knows God is not tolerant or slack, but he also knows that God is not unmerciful or unloving. And so David knows that the one true God is holy and loving and merciful. God is more merciful than any of us know. Romans says that his kindness is meant to lead us to repentance, and in repentance there is forgiveness, complete and perfect forgiveness that's found in Christ alone. Look at what David did, and I want you to know that in true repentance to a holy God, there's complete forgiveness for David. And that should give us hope as we look at our own lives. Don't just try to sweep the sin under the rug. Don't try to deal with it lightly. Don't try to explain it in a way that makes it less worse. You repent, you turn, you make a good confession, you listen to those who are rebuking you if you need it, and know that just like with David, there's complete and perfect forgiveness that's found in Christ alone that can be granted you by God. David rested his request for forgiveness on God's own promises of faithful love. His request for forgiveness wasn't based on what he could do that was good. He knew that God was good, and God promises faithful love, and that was the basis of his request for forgiveness from God. So the obvious question as we close is, what are you, what are you doing about your sin? And I, I, I think it's really fitting as we close this section, as we close this semester, we're a couple minutes over. I don't really care because... It's the last one. Turn to Psalm 51. This is probably the most wholehearted confession and appeal to God for cleansing and forgiveness um, in all of Scripture, maybe. So I just want to close with a reading of that, and then I'll pray, and we'll be dismissed. Consider what we've seen in the life of David in the last few weeks. God's blessings on his life. The blessing that he was to others as he led well. His sin, his repentance and his forgiveness. Psalm 51. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. This is the same guy who wrote, you rewarded me according to my righteousness. <laughs> The same one who wrote, you rewarded me according to my righteousness, is saying, I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. 
Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then will you delight in right sacrifices and burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. Let's pray. Yeah. Yeah, let's pray about that. Two months in Uganda? Cool. All right, let's pray about that too. Lord, we are very thankful uh, for your goodness towards us, and I pray that we would not despise it. I pray that we would not uh, look at what you have done and um, treat, treat it in disdain and, and move in our own fleshliness and sinfulness, Lord. I pray that you would help us to, um, to move in righteousness, to be blameless, and that when we sin, we would be true about what we've done, and we would accept rebuke, and we would confess rightly, and we would make things right and we would move in holiness, and we would experience forgiveness. Lord, you are so good to us. I mean, it's crazy how good you are to us. I'm thankful for the example you've given us in David, a man after your own heart. Um, help us to be sober and real about our sin, and most hopeful uh, in the goodness of our God and not our own goodness. I pray for Amanda as she's going to Uganda. I pray uh, that the next couple months are very fruitful for her. I pray that you would give her safe travels. I pray that um, whatever work she's doing there, that that she would be bright, salty, aromatic, and uh, live in a manner that's pleasing to you. I pray that you would allow her to have conversations that are edifying and allow her to uh, meet needs um, as they need to be met and as you give her opportunity. Lord, we love you very much. We thank you for Jesus and pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.